Why were we put here? I think everyone wants to know, why were we put here? Why are we on Earth? My purpose in life is to, um, to live a normal life, to, to be uh, a citizen, a productive citizen. Intentar pasar por la vida de la manera más desapercibida posible. I don't fully know why I'm here, but I enjoy that. I enjoy knowing that because then that creates endless possibilities for myself. I would like to make a difference, even if it's only in one life. I'd prefer to do more. Because I think the meaning of life, in my opinion, is to find something that you're passionate about and use that passion to make the world around you a better place. Does life have a purpose? If the answer to that is yes, I can tell you that mine is not to be playing the djembe. Uh, your pastor is not a djembe player, but we had someone get sick at the last minute, and sometimes you just got to jump in. But uh, if you have absolutely any musical talent, uh, Frank Graffius is the guy that you want to get in touch with, and uh, he will get you up here and get me off of here. Um, but it was my pleasure to fill in this morning uh, as best I could, but but we, we do want to ask the question this morning, does life have a purpose as we begin our series and explore God? You know, most of us probably don't spend a lot of time sitting around thinking about our life's purpose, and the time that we do spend can be pretty troubling, especially if we suspect that there is no meaning or purpose to this life. Even for those of us who do believe that life does have a meaning, that there is a purpose, that we're headed somewhere even finding the answers to some of life's simple questions can bring stress and anxiety. As we look for answers to questions like, how should I spend my money? Who should I spend my time with? And where should I work? We find that these questions can bring anxiety and stress because on a deeper level, these questions are, are really about our purpose in life. One of the first people who wrote about purpose in life was Solomon who was a king in ancient Israel. Solomon was the guy who had it all and had experienced it all. He had everything going for him. He was the wisest person of his day, perhaps one of the wisest people to ever live. People would come from all around the world just to hear him teach. He had more money than anybody could ever imagine. He was, was successful in everything he did. As, as a king, he led the nation of Israel to its pinnacle in the nation's history. And he had over a thousand wives and concubines. Right? So what we see with Solomon is that, number one, he's wise, he's smart. Number two, he's famous. Number three, he's rich. Number four, he's probably pretty good looking to get a thousand wives and concubines, right? So he's a little bit of a ladies' man. But Solomon, at the end of his life, takes time to stop and reflect to see if what, if anything, he had done or experienced brought meaning to his life. And then he sits down and he writes the book of Ecclesiastes, which is where we'll be this morning. So as we look into, the Eccle into Ecclesiastes, we're going to see what are Solomon's observations about this life, about meaning, about purpose. And what is his conclusion to the question, does life have a purpose? So turn with me, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting in verses 1 and 2, as we look at does life have a purpose? It says this, Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1 and 2. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Israel. Meaningless, meaningless. 
says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. All right, we can go home, right? There it is. That's it. We'll be first in line at Dos Salsas. We don't have to wait. We can head on out to Monument. No, that's, that's not the end. So if that's not the end, why does Solomon begin by saying that life is utterly meaningless? In order to understand that, we first have to understand a couple of the key phrases that appear throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. The first of these key phrases is, under the sun or under the heavens. And this is a phrase that Solomon uses to describe the limits of his search. So basically what he's saying is that as I search for meaning and purpose, I'm only going to count the things that, that I can experience through my senses, things that I can see, taste, touch, hear, and smell. The second key phrase is, I thought in my heart, or I thought to myself. When Solomon uses this phrase, he's, he's describing the empirical method by which he's going to evaluate that data. So not only is he only going to rely on his experience, tangible experience in this world, to find meaning, he's going to rely on his own intellect alone to understand and evaluate that experience to see if there's meaning in life. And when he does that, when he only allows himself to consider things under the sun, and when he only uses his own intellect to find out, if to evaluate his experiences, what he finds is life is meaningless, which is the third key phrase that we find throughout Ecclesiastes. That word meaningless, or some translations say vanity, actually means vapor, and it refers to something that is passing away or fleeting. And, you know, we find this, this very same idea in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 31, where Paul reminds us that the present form of this world is passing away. That's why all the things that Solomon could experience in this life seem to be vanity or meaningless because they were all passing away. Let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Let's read through some of the things that Solomon says are meaningless. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says this, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find what is good, but that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I brought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born into my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delight of, of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all of this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused to take no pleasure. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what toil I had had to achieve. Everything was meaningless and chasing after the word. Wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. What we see in these verses 
is Solomon's attempt to find meaning or purpose in material possession and physical pleasures. When you look at verse 3, what you see is that Solomon tried wine, and, and he tried living a carefree or frivolous lifestyle, just not worried about anything. He found that to be meaningless. In verses 4 through 6, we see that he tried having the nicest things around, better stuff than anyone else, and he found that too to be meaningless. He had people, in verse 7, we, we see that he had people to meet his every need, to wait on him hand and foot. In verse 8, we see that, that not only was he successful in his business, but he had, he had the best entertainment around. He had the best singers that anybody could find. And he had a harem of women to meet all of his physical needs. Yet, in spite of all this stuff, Solomon says, all these things, I found them to be meaningless. He could buy anything his heart desired and indulge in any pleasure he could possibly imagine. Yet, even with all that stuff, he still does not find a meaningful and purposeful life. Aren't you glad that, that Solomon went through this over almost 3,000 years ago so that you and I don't have to struggle with the same questions today? Right? None of us ever struggle with that. No, we, we still do. 3,000 years later, we're still struggling with what, what is my purpose? I'm going to try to find purpose in having a nicer house, having nicer clothes, driving a nicer car, making more money at work, being more successful in my job. And we look to all of these things and and like Solomon, we find that, that these things don't bring purpose. Like Solomon, what we find is even when we get those things, we still feel like something is missing. Tom Brady, the quarterback of the New England Patriots, is not only one of the NFL's best players, he's one of the NFL's great stories. At the tender age of 30, he has already won three Super Bowls, an accomplishment that ranks him with some of the best quarterbacks ever to play the game. And he's having one of the greatest seasons in pro football history. When we first reported on him back in 2005, he seemed underrated and almost overlooked. He doesn't have the arm of Peyton Manning, and he doesn't have tattoos, and he doesn't take steroids, and he's never held out for more money. All he knows how to do is win. It's what you always wanted. You're right. You're right. It has. And I didn't think it came with all the other baggage, though. In addition to his success on the field and his sex appeal off it, there is also the $60 million 10-year contract to play with the Patriots. I mean, I'm making more money now than I ever thought I could ever make playing football. <laughs> but with all that money, fame, and career accomplishments, we were surprised to hear this from him. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and and still think there's something greater out there for me. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Wish I knew. There's got to be more than this. Here's a guy that most of us, I think we could all agree, he's pretty much got it all. He's voted one of the world's 50 most beautiful people. He's married to the highest paid supermodel in the world. He's got a $60 million 10-year contract. He's got a little bit of job security there in the NFL. And, and at the time this was recorded, he was leading his team to a perfect season, 16-0 regular season. And he's got three Super Bowl rings, yet he still finds himself saying, there's got to be more than this. 
That's exactly what Solomon concludes. Solomon's conclusion after trying to find meaning in everything that he could possibly experience, everything that he could experience under the sun and thinking about it through his own intelligence, Solomon says, there's got to be more than this. There's got to be more than this. And finally, in chapter 12, at the very end of Ecclesiastes, he tells us what finally brought purpose and meaning to his life. Let's look at Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Solomon's conclusion is this, that life is meaningless without God, but God gives meaning to life. Everything is meaningless without God, but God gives life meaning. That's his conclusion. You see, all the way through chapters 1 through 11 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has, has completely left God out of the picture. He says, I'm going to rely on my own self, what I can experience, what I think, to, to tell me what has meaning. And so he leaves God completely out of the picture. And then here in chapter 12, he finally brings God back into the equation. And he says, you know what? This is what brings purpose. This is what brings meaning, is God. God is the one thing that can give our lives meaning and purpose. So the question then becomes, if, if God is the one thing that gives our lives meaning, how do we bring God into our lives? How do we allow him to bring meaning to us? How do we, how do we go about bringing God into our lives and discovering what our purpose is? Well, Jesus speaks to this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. So if you, if you want to go ahead and flip over there, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. And we're going to see what does Jesus say about how do we bring God into our lives and discover our purpose. He says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about what you will eat or about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Simply put, Jesus says that life gains meaning when you seek God first. Our lives gain meaning when we put God as our number one priority and begin to seek him first. If you notice, this section, chapter 25, begins with therefore. And whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you've got to ask yourself, what's the therefore, therefore? All right, and you've got to kind of back up a little bit and see what, 
what is going on before this so that I can better understand the section that I'm in. So in, in verses 25 through 34, Jesus starts by saying, therefore, and he's, he's referring back to something that he said earlier where he's just told his listeners, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, which, as we said earlier, is passing away. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And he goes on to, to finish that section by saying, no one can serve or be a slave to both God and money. Some translations use the word mammon, which is, uh, it refers to, to property or wealth. And Jesus is saying you can't have it both ways. You can't try to find your meaning or your purpose in both of these things. It's one or the other. And then in 25 he, through 34, he goes on to explain what that is, what that looks like. And, and then finally in verse 33, he says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. This gets us closer to understanding what our purpose is. In verse 25, Jesus, through 34, he explains some of the practical implications of why we're not to store up treasure for, for ourselves here on earth, but treasures in heaven. If you look closely, you'll see that over and over again, he uses the word worry. Do not worry. Why do you worry? Because when we pursue the things of this world, which are passing away, we're going to find that it's never enough. We never have the nicest thing, or there's always something new. I mean, the five, iPhone 5C or 5S is coming out in the next couple of weeks, right? So how many of you bought the iPhone 5 just six months ago? So you've got now something new. You can never have the newest and best thing. It's never going to be enough. It's never going to be there. There's always going to be something more. That's why Jesus, again, points in verse 33. He says, but seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Now, that phrase, seek first, doesn't mean simply first in time. Jesus is saying first in importance. We've got to make God our priority. God's kingdom, God's righteousness, God, what God wants for us has to be our priority. And the compelling reason for making God our priority is that when, when we make God our priority, we can experience peace. Versus running after the things of this world which we know are passing away and worrying and having anxiety. You know, you get a, we've got a, a brand new trailer that we, we got for, uh, for the church plant to move stuff in and out. And when we were going to pick some stuff up, Jason Dean said to me, he goes, Man, you, kn- you know someday someone's going to put a big old dent in this thing, right? And he says, I just hope it's not me. That trailer, you know, we're being really careful with it. It's brand new. It's beautiful. It's pretty. But someday, it's going to get a dent in it. Someday, something's going to break on it. It's passing away. It's fading away. It's perishing. To put our, our hope or feel like our, our life's purpose isn't anything in this world is simply meaningless. Seeking God first is, is often very simple. You know, we, we talked about some of those small questions that we, that we ask in life that cause us anxiety and stress. Questions like, who should I spend my time with? And where should I spend my money? And where should I work? You know, when we seek God first, it, it's really simple. Instead of saying, who should I spend my time with? We say, God, who would you have me spend my time with? Instead of thinking, how do I want to spend my money? You simply ask yourself, God, how would you spend me have me spend the money you've given me. And instead of thinking, where do I want to work? What do I want to do? God, where would you have me work? God, what would you have me do? 
And when we begin to ask those questions, we begin to put God as our number one priority. We begin to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. In his book, Reasons for God, Tim Keller says this. He says, most people think of sin as breaking divine rules. But the very first of the Ten Commandments is have no other gods before me. So according to the Bible, the primary way to define sin is not just in doing bad things, but in the making of good things into ultimate things. Man, this happens all the time. We see it every day. People take good things, things that are good, and they make that into the thing in which they try to seek their value and their purpose and their meaning. We've mentioned some of them already. A nice house. There's nothing wrong with having a nice house. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. The Bible doesn't tell us, it, it, it doesn't tell us, hey, you've all got to be poor. Nowhere does it exalt poverty and, and criticize legitimate gaining. So there's nothing wrong with having a nice house or a nice car or doing well for yourself. What the Bible criticizes is when we make those things the number one thing in our life. And so as, as we think about all these good things that we can have, a car, a house, clothing, a job, we've got to be careful that those nice things don't become the number one thing. Because when they become our priority, when they become the thing that we look to to bring our lives meaning and purpose, they become an idol and they become a sin. All right, you guys ready for this? You get ready. Everybody put your sharp objects and stones down because I think I'm going to step on a few toes here. Because as, as we talk about idols, I, I feel like I'd be doing a disservice if I didn't point out what in America is the number one idol that we have right now. It's not wealth. It's not houses or cars or jobs or success. It's our children. You think about it. How many parents do you see that put their kids up on this pedestal and the parent's entire life revolves around this children, child? It becomes the center of their universe. They do everything they can to make that child happy or to make that child successful. In fact, as we head back to school, you may have heard of this. There are parents, dads, who say, well, I'm going to hold my kid back a year so he can have an athletic advantage when he gets older. And like, really, what sport does he play? Well, he plays basketball. I'm like, dude, you are 5'4 and your wife is 4'9. He's never going to have an athletic advantage in basketball. Right, But these parents, they put their kids on this pedestal and they, they make their kids' happiness and success the center of their life. And what happens when the kid moves away to college and all the kids are out of the house, the parents find that they no longer have anything to talk about. They no longer have anything in common because the center of their world just walked out the door. And that's why we see so many marriages after, after the kids leave home ending in divorce. Because they f- the, the parents are failing to make God their number one priority and allowing their kids to occupy that spot. Now again, kids are not a bad thing, and it's not a bad thing to want good things for your kids. But we just got to ask ourselves, are we making that the number one thing in our life? In verse 32, Jesus talks specifically about the kind of people who have idols in their lives. He says this, he says, the pagans run after these things. Jesus is reminding his listeners that the pagans, the people who don't know God, who worship idols, are the ones who are constantly focused on the material. And he says, you're not to be that way. Your life is to be different because you have a different focus. You have a different priority. Unfortunately, there are many people today who believe in God and say they believe in God. Yet when you look at their lifestyle, 
their lifestyle completely denies God's existence. There's one writer that says, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge God with their lips but deny him with their lifestyles. And there's a term for that. There's a term for the kind of person who says, I believe in God, but then lives as if God doesn't exist. And in fact, it's, it's probably the fastest growing religion in America today. It's called practical atheism. Practical atheism. Basically, it's someone who says, you know what, I, I believe God exists, but the rest of the week, and I'm going to show up to Sunday, and, and I'm going to give the right answers if I'm asked, and I might even tell someone I'm praying for you, but the rest of my life, I'm living like Gordon Gecko, trying to keep up with the Kardashians, right? That's not our purpose. That's not who we're called to be. Our purpose is to seek God first. There's a, a beautiful illustration in the book of Jeremiah. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it real quickly. But Jeremiah paints a beautiful picture of, of what it's like when we seek something other than God first in our lives. Listen to what he says in Jeremiah chapter 2. He says, Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug cisterns of their own, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. In Jeremiah's day, there were three sources of water in Palestine. The first and absolutely best source was running water, like from a spring. It was cold. It was clean. It was beautiful. The second best source was groundwater, like you might find in a well. Many of you guys are building houses now, and and you're out far away from the city, so you're having to dig well, and, and you'll be drinking that same kind of water, groundwater that's collected there. And the third option was a cistern. It was runoff water. They would just dig these holes at low points in the ground and dig tunnels that would channel water from all over the ground into these cisterns. They would have debris and everything. And Jeremiah says that, that the people of God here, the Israelites, have traded not only the best water for the worst water, it's, it's even worse for that than that. Their cistern's broken. It's leaking water everywhere. It's not holding any water, and they're left drinking sludge. And that's exactly what, what happens to us when, when we look for something other than God to bring meaning or purpose in our lives. When we worship the creation rather than the creator. When we idolize the gift rather than the giver. We dig cisterns for ourselves all the time. We dig cisterns for our jobs, for our families, for our, our positions, for glory, for fame, you name it. Over and over and over again, we dig these cisterns only to find that time and time again, they don't hold water and we're left drinking sludge. Let me ask you this morning, are you drinking from the right source? Are you drinking from a spring of life or a sludgy cistern? When you pursue something other than God, when you put anything other than God first, you miss it. You drink from the sludgy cistern. You may find some temporary satisfaction. You may find that it brings you joy for a little while. But in the end, what you find is that not only are you drinking from a cistern, but your cistern is broken because the things of this world are meaningless. They're passing. They're fading away. You know, when we, when we look to the Bible, 
for the answer to the question, does life have a purpose? We find that life is meaningless without God, but God brings life meaning. And we also see that life gains meaning when you seek God first. You know, the best way that I can think of to seek God first is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and and you have never trusted Christ, and you don't know what that means, we would love to talk with you. Someone would love to talk with you back at the connections table or after the service up front. Because that's the best way to begin seeking God first is to place your trust in his son, Jesus Christ, that your sins can be forgiven so that you can live, not for this earth, but for eternity. When you trust Christ, you can know that you will spend eternity in heaven with God. That's why when Jesus began his discussion on do not worry, but seek first, he he starts in the previous section by saying, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth because it's passing away. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The way you begin that is simply by placing your trust in Jesus Christ. On the screen, you'll see a picture of, of a dot with a line extending from it. Now, this dot on the screen represents the short 78.7 years that we have on this earth. Right? On average, we get 78.7 years. Some of you are doing the math, and you're like, yikes, I don't have much time left. That line with the air extending from it, represents all of eternity. Solomon tried living for the dot. And he found that that life was meaningless. Jesus encourages us to live for the line. Live for eternity. Put your hope in the, in the things that are to come, not the things that are fading away. Let me ask you this morning, are, are you living for the dot or are you living for the line? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that, that you bring meaning to our lives. That through you and in you, we can have meaning and find purpose for all the things that it is that you have called us to do. Lord, I pray this week that, that as we stop and we reflect on life gaining meaning through seeking God first, I pray that each of us would would take the time to ask, God, have I allowed something other than you to occupy the number one spot in my life? God, is there something in my life that I'm trying to find meaning in that's fading away? God, I don't want to be stuck drinking from a sludgy cistern. I want to drink from the spring of life. God, I don't want to live for the dot. I want to live for the line. As we do that, Lord, as we begin to explore you, as we begin to seek you first, would you just show yourselves to us, show yourself to us that we would know you, be drawn deeper into relationship with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.